how would you like to use your agency to produce an asset that cash flows and generates you cash for years to come? That's what you're going to hear about in this edition of Agency Exits as I interview Tommy McGill. Hi, and welcome to the Agency Exits podcast. I'm here with Tommy McGill, who's going to share a harrowing tale of a agency and things gone right and things go wrong. So, Tommy, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Uh, let's start out and give people a little bit of context of what your agency was, maybe at the time that you sold it, who you serviced, sure. what, what did that look like, what the size of the agency, what kind of clients did you have and all that good stuff. And then we can kind of get into how you got there. Yeah, of course. So I co-owned, I was the managing partner of a performance marketing agency called the Gexa Agency. We serviced two ideal clients, one of which was online course creators who are anywhere between 300 to 500,000 in revenue per month. And our value add there was we're able to usually around that infrastructure, two to three X the revenue profitably without eroding too much margin. So margin would come down 15 to 20%. But that being said, now they're making twice the revenue. The second type of client that we helped essentially was direct to consumer brands. They typically were smaller brands. So think of brands anywhere from 50 to 150,000, where they might not be able to have that own director of marketing who has a lot of prowess and a lot of experience scaling these types of brands. And it's more so mid-senior to mid-level people who have a really good understanding. But that being said, there's so much to do with these small businesses. And so we usually were the ones who managed both Google and Facebook for those types of businesses. Overwhelmingly, those are the two types of uh, customer personas we service. And they're, both of those are, I mean, they're very different customer personas. They're both probably, because one is course creators, those are typically thinly staffed businesses, founder-led types. And then the other kind of client also relatively small in terms of staffing, but the revenue characteristics are pretty different in those two, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's something we'll probably get into in the conversation. But what I will say is, um, yes, we started out with the background, both my founder and I had a background in course creation, primarily at consulting.com and other sort of online information sellers in the mid 2010s that really provided the impetus for us to start the agency over time. And then as we continue to service and do well for our clients, they had friends and their referrals range from anywhere where it's B2B SaaS to direct to consumer. And we ended up hiring an e-com staff of our agency. So yes, that, that is one of those lessons, which I would love to dig into here in probably like the next 15 to 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, lessons learned and things we would and would not do again. So exactly. to rewind a little bit. And so you'd worked in an agency context and then at consulting.com. Yep. Take us just really briefly through that so that we can understand what your context was starting the agency, what drove you to start it, and that'll kind of lay the groundwork for what to do and what not to do. Yeah, of course. So I actually, when I graduated from college, I started out in a big agency. It was about 150 to 250 people, and it was doing between 30 when I got there million to about 50 million when I left, and that was in the span of a year. So that was very big, had multiple departments, functions. That specific agency was buying other agencies and other businesses to add on to its arm of different niches. So I was able to spend at scale and see what different offers worked in that context. I went to a smaller agency there then, and that was doing about 
4 million to 6 million a year in top line. It was about eight full timers. And mm -hmm. I was able to build a department around me there. It was a very small department, but I was able to essentially uh, use the skills from the past and actually use that playbook and, and be able to run it effectively. And after doing that for about a year, I said, hey, I like this agency world stuff, but I'd like to work in-house somewhere. And that's right. where a company called consulting.com and I connected. And so the director of marketing there, he and myself, we connected on Facebook in a Facebook ads group back in the day when there were only like a thousand people in that type right. of group. And <laughs> yeah, we, we joined we joined forces. I was a, a Google buyer there, became director of growth. And he and I eventually said, oh, this is really interesting. Let's try to start our own portfolio of online education brands, which leads mm -hmm. us to the agency. And the agency was there to essentially provide cash flow from the beginning. So we're able to not only pay ourselves relatively well, but also hire key and very talented players right from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And so consulting.com, obviously kind of one of the granddaddies of, I've got an education product and we're going to drive a <laughs> boatload of traffic to it and scale even if margins are not the best. And so you take those lessons and said, okay, yep. hey, I can do this too, because I've got the playbook. Yes, absolutely. That is it to a T. We ran a lot of paid there. And then over time, that sort of transformed into email referral programs. And it leaned out to be like a very margin rich business. Uh, but, you know, revenue sort of uh, nosedive, but that's a fine compromise when you're looking at net. Yeah. Right. So you start, so you yeah. started the, so did you start the agency with the eye to always, I'm going to turn this into my own course business or was it kind of more like, I know how to do this. I'll get some clients and it evolved into, I'm going to start, I should do this too. Which, which came first? What came first was us starting, well, us having the idea of starting online education startup studio. So that mm -hmm. came first. And then we said, how can we get this vision within two to three years to be like our full-time thing? And the right. agency was a proxy for cash flow there. And so that's where sort of the idea started is we did good work in the past for consulting.com and had some connections. And that's how we originally got the agency off of the ground, essentially, was mm -hmm. using the people who bought the consulting.com course because there were over 20,000 people. There are over right. 100 who did over a million in revenue per year. And then there were a subset of those, about 20 to 30 people who probably did anywhere between 3 million to 10 million in annual revenue. And so we, mm -hmm. we said, hey, let's start at the top. Hey, we're consulting.com performance marketers. We'd love to partner or maybe potentially even be your agency of record. Does that sound interesting? It took one or two of those people who didn't quite know who we were because we were behind the scenes. And mm -hmm. once we had the conversation and everything, we did good work for them and one spread to three, four, five. And then all of a sudden we were like, wow, this is growing faster than we can really fulfill and we should start an agency. Interesting. So the thing that's interesting about this to me is that you started out almost, it's a channel sale in a way. I mean, you really picked something that's very specific and a channel sale can be a platform like, oh, we're a HubSpot agency or XYZ. But in yep. your case, you found a particular population of people and could identify those who were actually doing serious revenue and just dig deep and be specific in that way. Exactly. And I, I would say one of the, one of the key learnings really early was 
being able to go deep and be being able to create very custom proposals for a lot of these clients, at least for us, what we've seen with that specific niche itself is they really appreciated us going deep. So the decks were, they were only about 10 to 12 slides, but within there, we packed a ton. And then also that cold email had a ton of personalization, a ton of mm -hmm. recommendations, but it was short, concise, and to the point. It wasn't overly verbose. It was probably two to three paragraphs, but mm -hmm. we were able to like hyperlink multiple things to looms that we show, hey, if you do this compared to this would help increase blah, blah, blah by X percent and did really well initially. Interesting. So it really was cold outreach, albeit to a crowd that you knew, but it was cold outreach in order to get those clients. Exactly. Yep. It was cold outreach. They did not know who we were, or if they did know who we were, we met them one time and might've had a 15 minute conversation. So acquaintances mm -hmm. would be probably a stretch. It is almost cold email. The only legitimacy and credibility to our names was that we were from consulting.com who, you know, from an authority standpoint was pretty well regarded within the online course space. That's great. So, so you start that agency and take me through the, the journey of that agency, because you had some, a little bit of a roller coaster on that one. So as you grew it and some of your, your yep. margin issues with that. So I think people would be very interested to hear th that evolution over, it's not that long period of time, it's, you know, yeah. a couple of years, but I think yeah. it's a lot of learning compressed into a short amount of time. Yes. 100% agree with you. So yeah. And I'm going to try to recall to the best of my ability here, but I believe it was near in August of 2019 was the original time where we said, Hey, you know what? Let's spin up an agency. Let's see if we get a couple people to, you know, hire us from the end of August, 2019 to the end of the year, we did about, I believe it was like 20 K in revenue the first full year in 2020, we got it to about 475,000. By the end of 2021, it was over a million. And then going into 2022 is when we started the conversation about exiting. But those years, the, the first 120K in revenue the first year, essentially that was all margin. We were operating right. at about 80 to 85% margin. Then <laughs> from 120 to 475K, we were hovering at like 5%. It, it was mm -hmm. 45 to 55%. And then from uh, 475 to a little over a million, when we were at that million mark, it was around 35, 37%. And then going into 2022, and we'll probably talk about this was, hey, we're looking at like relatively large investments relative to our margin and relative to our bank account. Because like I said, we, we started this to support the startup studio for our online education brands. So. Mm -hmm we didn't really have retained earnings. It was just one of those things where, hey, listen, the bank account is constantly at 100K. <laughs> like right. it's, it, and thankfully at the time, thinking about the context, there was the PPP going on. We had a PPP loan as well. So mm -hmm. that helped us out initially too. So like definitely go looking for little things like that. Ask your accountant if there's anything that's out there that could be beneficial. But that's the quick synopsis of like the growth and the margin and as you could probably tell, as I tell this story, uh, revenue goes up, margin goes down and it's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a classic story of a service-based business. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's always the case. And there are certain plateaus and it, it kind of yep. depends on how fast an agency grows. Like you see it very starkly, but for an agency mm -hmm. that's been kind of 
going along at a reasonable clip, they're growing 10, 20% a year over time. They might not notice that, right? But yeah. it absolutely is happening that the revenue, the, the margins is, are starting to go down and down. And it's two years later, you're like, well, wait a minute, why have I grown 20, 30% on making the same amount of money? It's yep. just that, that growth sucks cash axiom is always true. So it's yes. something to be thinking about. You're thinking, oh, I want to scale this. Okay, you want to scale this, but to what end and what kind of margin do you need to maintain in order to make it yep. interesting for an acquisition? Yes, absolutely. And, and one of the key learnings there was, yeah, to your point, it's a game of constant war and attrition almost. It's pretty crazy. My co-founder and I, Mike, my co-founder had an accounting background uh, in PwC and mm -hmm. he was in the audit department there. So very numbers focused. I came from in college, I did supply chain management internship. So numbers oriented, but I wouldn't call myself mm -hmm a mathematician by means. And I would say one of the things I wish I could have told myself when I started the agency business at large is just get super clear on the goals and orient your goals as such and understand when there's organic and inorganic growth. So really what I mean there is like from the organic versus inorganic growth, there were times where when you do good work, there's like if you do good work for a period of maybe two to three months in a row for a particular client, they really cherish you and they really cherish mm -hmm. the relationship. And it's a great time to say, hey, yeah, like looking for one more client. It, oftentimes when we did that, it's very simple and straightforward. And we would get, I believe, like a referral. I think it was like 60% of the time we asked for it if we did good work for like two straight months. And then as for like goals and orientation towards those goals, get clear to your point on like, hey, listen, why are we scaling the complexity of our service-based business, but we're making the same cash? Let's get clear on the things that we need. So like the goal orientation, we go from 100K to 200K a month in revenue, which we never got to. It was because we didn't orient our goals towards that the, the things that need you need to go from 100K to 200K. Our orientation was still from, hey, get it to from 75K to 100K. And I think that was one of the, the, the main blockers for us as an organization. Well, it's a very different kind of thinking, right? The 2X thinking is different from 10X thinking in a lot of ways, right? Or the 0.2X thinking is a little incremental thinking that often we have to do when we're doing a startup because it's only us yep. and it's just the next foot in front of the other. But then there, hits, there, there comes some point in service businesses growth where entirely different thinking is needed. And often to that margin compression concept, you just have to hire people and bite the bullet and you're not gonna be making a lot of money until you come out the other yeah. side and those people are productive. Yeah, absolutely. That's the game where, you know, as a first time entrepreneur, I think, especially myself, I thought better than what I was. And you're thinking about the capital outlay and the relative payback and the payback period, more importantly, of those things. One of, one of the things we've tried was like, oh, we have this nice online education, small agency going on, and it's hovering at 75K a month. Well, let's tack on an e-commerce side mm -hmm. of the agency. And hey, we can grow this out very similarly. The first principles thinking is, hey, the same sort of problem and solutions will occur. And it's just a different tool. It's not a hammer anymore. Maybe it's a screwdriver. Right. Um, and us not being able to really understand that we need somebody like us in the seat building out that e-commerce side, because we don't know what that tech stack looks like. We don't 
know what that playbook looks like. I think that was one of the key things where we were like, oh, it's a lot of capital to outlay and we believe in it. But that being said, we didn't really suss it out the right way, nor did we think about how we would strategically grow it month mm -hmm. over month. It was, hey, couple of referrals coming in, let's just hire these people. And I think the crux of the true problem was, and, and this goes back to like me not being the best version of myself and, and thinking through the best strategy was we hired a director of marketing who was uh, a paid strategist or a senior paid strategist at a $20 million business for a million, $1.2 million agency to build this out. And we were mm -hmm. super excited because he had all the bells and whistles. He right. could talk the talk. He worked with <laughs> X, Y, and Z, all of the brands you would love to be associated with. But then when it got there, we made the fatal flaw of saying like, man, he's 10 steps ahead of us. We're like yeah. down here. And he, he doesn't know how to walk our walk because right. he has so much of an infrastructure at this bigger organization, which is great. And he's yes. amazing here, but it's such a different ball game here. It'd be almost playing a different sport. Right. Professional basketball player can't be a, a professional NFL player. He can't just right, walk right. into the squad and be like, hey, this is great. And <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very interesting. It, and if my friend, if my friends and I were hanging out and somebody said like, I just hired this guy, I would have said that exact same thing to them. I'm like, what, are you kidding me? But it's one yeah. of those things where you're in the seat and uh, yeah, it, it becomes very easily visible after the fact. <laughs> And it's one of those things where I can exactly see the thinking. I did the same thing. It's like, first, I'm going to absorb extra revenue. Well, it's right there yep. for the taking. And then you're like, well, I need yep. someone to do the work. So I'll get the best person to do. So you hire someone enterprise grade, but exactly what you were saying. And the inverse is also true. They're at that level. And they're at the, from a $20 million agency. If you were to be a $20 million CEO, that's the same gap, right? And, and you're not yet there in this agency. Yep. So that gap is large. So you have to hire ahead, but not too far ahead. Yep, exactly. And I think Eli Gill's high growth handbook, he says like hire people for the next six months to a year. I think it was a year was the number he earmarked. And mm -hmm. yeah, that's something after the fact where I was like, yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> so you did that. You tried to grow out two businesses and out of yep. my rule of thumb, and which is really interesting observation, having seen so many agencies is like, you can hmm. actually get away with either one service line or one vertical being highly specialized up to 10 million, yep. up to $10 million. And you kind of don't even need more than one acquisition channel up to seven figures. So it, it, yep. it's really interesting how much more room there is to run when you're being specific versus at some point thinking, oh, well, I need to add on an extra service line. And usually, usually I see that being a mistake. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree. And that was the thing. We had a, a pretty clear path where we said, we could probably get to about two and a half million a year with like online education course creator businesses. Now, do they have the same composition? No, but that being said, we feel very comfortable with businesses that are below that mark. And, and we've had businesses in the online education space do up to $50 million a year. So we felt pretty comfortable going upstream, but yeah. also downstream as well. But yeah, it's, it gets into the, the grass is always greener point of view, I think. And uh, we were like, oh, we've done online education for three or four years straight. We, we were involved with this great company. We'd love to learn something new selfishly. And then you go into e-commerce and you're like, wow, I 
don't think I, I wanted this. <laughs> I don't know I, anything. I'm yeah, starting again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Which, which is fun. And it, it was actually gr a great learning experience overall, because oftentimes I'd find myself trusting the employees mm -hmm. more, to be honest with you, because if you don't have the specific domain experience over the tech stack, over what the ads look right. like, the thumb, the metrics, all in the weed stuff, you just manage in, in true management form. But that mm -hmm. being said, I think something that we didn't think about fully is the, the sophistication of the type of person who sits in an e-commerce direct consumer CEO space versus an yeah. online course creator space. Because online course creators, they're amazing. Many have great lifestyle businesses, very mm -hmm. margin rich, maybe four to five full-time employees if they're doing 2 million a year. And if they're doing mm -hmm. 5 million a year, they might have like, 10 employees and these D2C companies, I mean, the, there's just more infrastructure. It's not ethereal. And so oftentimes we would see much more complex financial modeling there. There'd be mm -hmm. more things to consider when it comes to contribution margin, net revenue, all of those things. And that was really fun to learn. But that being said, that takes time. And when you're yeah. sitting in a point of leverage that my co-founder and I were sitting at, we probably should not have been doing that. <laughs> well, and, the, and you use the word leverage, which is like the smart word to use, right? Because you're levering your time, your assets in that organization towards something, right? Ultimately, yeah. value for you guys. And where do you place those bets? And where do you have the largest yeah. leverage? Is it e-commerce and starting a whole new, essentially a whole new business there? Yeah. Or is it doubling down on something else? Or as you probably start to, to talk about a little bit, your own course creation business because you started this thinking, yeah. oh, I want to do this myself. You've got these clients, you're proving it out. It works again and again. So talk maybe a little bit about that, that evolution of now creating your own asset of yeah. a services business. Cause I love that, that evolution of assets from services. Yeah, absolutely. And like the, the great thing about this too, is like, okay, so whereas it, to draw two different parallels, the agency we started out of almost necessity, there was honestly, there was research, don't get me wrong, is probably 20 to 30 hours of research. But with the startup studio side, we probably researched 200 to 400 hours. So we understood all of the different models over here, didn't really understand this, but this was a quote unquote simpler model. So we were like, okay, great. We don't need to do that because this is the long term. And so mm -hmm. what we did is we placed two bets on our startup studio side where we owned the assets. We started brands from scratch out of our bank account and that we would partner with a content creator. We called him chief content creator or brand visionary, and they mm -hmm. would own a piece of the business. We would own a piece of the business and we would launch that in unison. And that was okay. That wasn't great to be honest with you because every launch we earmarked between 50 and 75,000 and that does not count overhead. And with those types of businesses, those employees tend to be a little bit more expensive than maybe some agency employees. So mm -hmm. really we were doing that and that was one bet. And then the other bet within the startup studio was saying, we know we don't have the capital, but we have the expertise. So let's find a partner who has the capital and we can start this co-business together. They front the capital, they build out the employee base. We can leverage ourselves because we have mm -hmm. the hiring, we know all of, we know the initial talent base, but we just mm -hmm. can't foot the bill because the bill plus the burn from launching right. brands is gonna be too much. 
And so we did that as well uh, at the same time. So we effectively had completely owned brands, a partnering brands and an agency. And mm -hmm. the partnering brands, that worked really well. That scaled very fast. And that's the thing that exponentially grew year over year. And so we had a really successful launch uh, with our first brand called Astro Flipping. And that mm -hmm. grew from zero to 3.9 million in a year. And it had considerable margin the first year. And we did not own the majority of this business that we partnered because the other people deployed capital. They right. were the ones employing them. We had a, albeit we signed, we're, we're on the operating agreement. So we have over 20% of that business. And it was a great investment for us because it de-risked us, but it also mm -hmm. allowed us to test faster and in a leveraged way, are our fundamental thoughts, are the things that we're doing, are our playbooks good? Or right. under the right circumstances and environment, do they provide results? And they did. So that's where we started thinking like, okay, let's do this a little bit more. And as year over year, the agency grew and this business grew, we found ourselves spending much less time over here, albeit since they had overhead and they had employees and it was going really well, we would hop on and spend anywhere between five to 10 hours a week in a very leveraged way, effectively being like, think of a GM or think mm -hmm. of a CMO and doing all of those things. And that business just kept on growing to the point where it was our equity stake and our distributions every month were 2X what the agency was in, in revenue. And at that point in time, also there were only three people who worked on this partnered brands. So right. the margin there was <laughs> phenomenal. And we right. we looked at each other and we were like, wait a second. We, so what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, well, well, why are we doing this? So yeah, it, yeah. it was very interesting. But on the other hand, in order to do what you did, you kind of had to go through those steps, right? Because you were validating yep. at each step, okay, I can take the knowledge I have from consulting.com. I can actually deploy yep. it on other people's assets. Okay, I want to build my own assets and I'm going to just do an owned and operated one so that I can yep. test my playbook. Okay, now let's experiment with getting capital. And, and so you're building what is the highest leverage thing, which is your intellectual capital. Yep. in order to yep. you know get those kinds of returns. So it's not like you could have necessarily jumped all the way there because you wouldn't necessarily have the credibility or the experience to do that. Yeah, exactly. And also what I would say too is like, I think the agency is a simple, not easy business model. But what I would say is like, the learnings there are probably the most, they help you instinctually speaking and they help you from an insights perspective and like, it's just cutting your teeth. The, the hiring process that I created for our agency was implemented with all of our partnered brands. And so that was the hiring process, all of the hiring mm -hmm. tests, the hiring questions, the way we do things that was implemented over here. The onboarding process was implemented over here. And, but we, I was creating this for the agency because that was like what we were really focusing on at the time. So yeah, to your point, it's like it, 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 a lot of these things have dual purposes and you couldn't have this without that. I, I don't know. I view an agency as a great starter business. I mean, it's not to say that you, you can't be an advanced entrepreneur and, and have an agency, but it is a fantastic yeah. business to start and cut your teeth. And But some folks do neither, right? They cut their teeth on it. They're doing yeah. that. They're not building an asset and they're not really growing the agency to sell or to cash flow enough. So they're kind of doing 
none of the above. So I, you know, if there's one takeaway so far that I have, it's like, okay, look at the opportunity that Tommy created from just an agency and a little bit of intellectual capital, which is learned on the job. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, the agency model, like, I think because of the agency, my, my co-founder and I, like we, that was the basis of like everything else that we've done. And what I would mm -hmm. say is that those problems there, like oftentimes are relational or employee-based. And those mm -hmm. are honestly within any business, it could be SaaS, it could be whatever. I think those are the hardest problems. And if you mm -hmm. even uh, go from a two to a seven because of an agency, like you're like, wow, this is an incredible skill that could be highly useful in almost any industry. So I really love the agency space. And there are just so many templates I use from the agency days for different right. types of businesses at large. I love it. You got your swipe file from the business <laughs> templates on that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit about how you started to I, don't, I guess, fade out from the agency piece and, and how you found a home for it and what that looked like. Because you had an interesting last, I don't know, six to nine months of that run. Yeah, absolutely. So crazy. The thesis behind the agency was cash flow, and we grew relatively <laughs> good, fast organically. <laughs> Just money in pockets, please. And right. and so we built a very, a very bad infrastructure. Like, it, it was bad. And it got to the point where we had... 10 to 12 people. And we were like, oh, wow, we really have to systematize this. And so leading those nine months leading up to us ultimately selling and signing the document to sell the business, a couple of things happened, which really cemented everything that we thought of what we thought a con of the agency space was. And I will say caveat, I don't think my skill set fully matches the agency world. So I will say I, it's probably like, I was playing Call of Duty when I should have been playing Madden. I just two did two different things. Yeah. So in the six to nine months, I was really building out an infrastructure. We thought about the idea of selling and it was always in the back of our minds. And I was like, okay, I'm going to build all of the infrastructure for us to sell, which was great. Mm -hmm. And I was really doing that, like probably two and a half to three and a half hours per day. I was documenting things. I was running case mm -hmm. studies. That was my first mistake is I should have delegated those things to a mm -hmm. certain extent. But that being said, I think I was focusing on the thing to the best of my ability at the time. I also, I was the managing director of the agency, I actually had promoted somebody to managing director of the agency leading up to the acquisition too. And, and that was actually a year before we were going to sell the agency. And mm -hmm. That was a good decision, but not the right decision because it was the wrong person to take the seat. Mm. He was mm -hmm. way too early in his career. And that's one of those things where, once again, it's like you should have. And this is why an agency business, you're driving a rocket, but you're driving on a highway. Like the, right. the two things do not mix at all. And it's like, I'm trying to learn as much as possible while at the same time implementing and doing these things right. well. And it's just. <laughs> It's a cacophony of mistake after mistake, but it's great. And so I promoted him and he did a great job. He did like as well as he could have. But the reality mm -hmm. of the situation was there was such a gap and a chasm between what where he was at and where he needed to go. And so that mm -hmm. was my inability to understand that at the time. And so what happened was he was the agency managing director of the agency for six months. 
And at the six month mark, he's like, Hey man, I just, I need to leave. I don't know Mm. what is going on. I don't know North or South anymore. I feel like I'm failing in every single thing. And I was like, I totally understand. That's great. That's like, honestly, I'm very happy that you told me this. I wish we would have been able to have more of a dialogue, but I understand this is like, the biggest thing and what comes after being a CEO of an agency or, or a managing director? I, I don't right. know. And right. I, I think he was stuck on that. And so he left. And after he left, I had to step back in the seat and a couple of different things happened. He sent out an email to all of our clients, letting them know he was leaving. And it ended up, MRR ended up dropping by about 30 to 40% because of that. Ouch. And that's one of those things where Ultimately, it reflects on my co-founder and I, definitely not the person at the time. Like for him to do that, we must have done something. Like he was very stressed out. He was in a really bad place. But that being said, we should have had a couple of things, bow and tie, dot our eyes, cross our T's for that not to happen. And and that's the right. naivete of both my co-founder and I, certainly me, like it, it was our first time. And so mm-hmm. when I hopped back into the seat, we were within a couple months, able to get back up to where we were at before. But that took a lot of energy. That took a lot of focus. And the way we did it, I would have had to stay in the seat and I would have had to really make it truly mine. And it, mm-hmm. at that point in time, I was it, it just wasn't the right fit. We were doing too well in the other part of the business. And so yeah. we've had conversations that entire year about selling. And we were like, now's the best time. Like we'd rather discounted rate where, you know, it, essentially just wipe our hands clean and say, Hey, mm-hmm. listen, it is what it is. We could grow this more. Right. We got it back to where it's at, but it's, it's just not in the cards. So that was right. what sort of the context was getting to the point of selling. And, and how did you find the buyer? I think that's always an interesting thing. Some folks put it on the market. Some folks my sale, I knew the person, the owner of the other yeah. agency. And so that, that kind of shortcutted the entire process, but I, I love hearing the different roads. So how did you come across your buyer? Yeah. So as we were growing, we had a couple offers, so that was great. And that was really awesome. Fun to talk to different people. And then we had a couple conversations with people within our network. And what we would do really is like every couple months, we'd hop on with a, another agency owner and we do it one at a time. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't like grouped and because those types of calls could last for a weekend. You could get yeah. together and do a whole <laughs> event, but we would make sure to talk to some of our closest friends who are doing really well in an agency setting much better than we could do. And we were like, Hey, listen, we'll show you underneath the hood. Here's the good, mm-hmm. bad, and the ugly. And it'd be awesome if you could do the same. And we did that mm-hmm. with a couple of people. And as we were talking about it, almost every single person was, Hey man, it sounds like you really hate your agency. And at first we were like a little reticent and hesitant to be, yeah, you're right. We were like, I don't know. Cause to a certain extent, even if agency revenue went down, we, we got it back to over a million dollar business really fast. We had sort of the thought of, oh my gosh, it's our baby. Mm-hmm. We care for it, but we don't know yeah. why the rationality behind that is a little bit de- decoupled from where it should be. And yeah. And so. Eventually we heard it enough and we're like, they, first of all, <laughs> nobody has the incentive to lie to us. And then yeah, secondly, right, exactly. like, nothing to gain. Yeah, absolutely nothing to gain. 
and they're friends. And like, that's what friends do. Like good friends are like, right. Hey, I see something's wrong. I just want to, I just want to say something. I don't know the fix. I just, I, I wouldn't be a good friend if I, if I didn't say this. And so right. that's what happened. And so we started the conversation there and then we simultaneously mm -hmm. listed on a couple of third-party platforms, one being MicroAcquire at the time, now Acquire.com, and some other ones. And we had probably about, I believe, eight, like, I would call semi-interested people, people mm -hmm. who put together IOIs, which for everybody out there is an indication of interest. So mm -hmm. it is a non-legally binding way of saying, hey, we've had a conversation. I've looked at your SIM, which is a confidential inf information memorandum. It's essentially like, hey, I looked at what your whole, your business looks like on paper, the description of it, the services, your competitors, how you're doing as a business. And I'm interested enough in putting together an offer that I think is fair, given the variables that I have. And so we got a couple of those and then a couple LOIs, letters of intent, which is a little bit more, those buyers are a little bit more confident in the business. They usually see the actual numbers they mm -hmm. dig into customer concentration. They look into employee retention. They look at all of the, the margin things, everything. How, what does the structure look like between you and your co-founder, aqua hire versus strategic, whatever. Right. And yeah. And so we had about four different offers in the end and it was for great. something, and something was, that you hated completely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they were anywhere from, they were anywhere from point. 8x EBITDA to one and a half EBITDA. And then there were people we were talking to who valued our business at 2x EBITDA. But my co-founder and I had the, the thought of this, regardless of like 0.x to 2x, yeah, sure, there's a very big difference between the sums of money. But more so than that, we know that our other business is spitting out gobs of cash we should at least be like a fiduciary. We're responsible for everybody inside of the organization. We want to position them as well as we can. So we ended up taking an offer that was, I believe, 1.15 EBITDA, I want to say. So not the best offer by any means, but it was one where it was a friend. They did mm -hmm. really well. Their leadership and our leadership, like we knew each other for more than four years. And the way they lead an organization is the way we would lead our organization, but they were just frankly better at it. They were in the agency game longer than us. They knew how to speak to people. They thought about the agency in a much more nuanced way. And we were like, oh my God, like they're, they would be like our future selves if we continued and really wanted to grow this agency. So yeah, right. we decided to take that. And so the transaction sounds like it wasn't terribly complex because it was no. straightforward from knowing the buyer. Yeah, exactly. And it, it took from the first conversation to close, it took, I think it was like three or three and a half months. So very fast by like M&A mm -hmm. standards. The deal was relatively small compared to other transactions as well, which does help with speed. Relationships mm -hmm. definitely do help with speed as well because there's some proxy, but obviously you need to do your due diligence. And mm -hmm. those calls where we went under the hood, so to speak, and just like we were an open book. It was mm -hmm. everything. And like they knew what they were buying. Well, I, I re very distinctly remember that I put this together for like the eight LOI people. 
I put together three lists that I heard time and time again that were incredibly helpful for people who are buying our organization. So number one was a list of every single client we churned, the team mm -hmm. that was on that specific client, the tenure of the client, the lead on the client, and the primary reason we thought they left. And if mm -hmm. we were wrong about this primary reason, what would be the secondary reason? And hmm. so that helped incredibly because there was a certain level of like, okay, cool. This was the team, which helps enough. But that being said, what helps a little bit more is we had documents of like all of our clients and the things and the deliverables we give them. And so after the fact looked at all of this and we're, oh, wait a second for all of the clients in like online education that did really well. The ones that did the best were ones that we wrote more than seven pieces of ad copy per month for. Oh, that's hmm. really interesting. We never thought at the point in time, directionally speaking, we'd say, obviously, hey, do more, not less. Right. Yeah. But that to a person who is just an employee is pretty much, hey, look over there. What am yeah. I looking at? That was a really good key piece that I heard a lot of good feedback. We put together an org chart. We already had an org chart, but what mm -hmm. we did that actually was really helpful was a delineation of responsibilities and breaking down the quote unquote level of the employee. So in a lot of tech businesses, it's like L10 to L1 or L1 to L10. Mm -hmm. And that's just a measure of your seniority and your contribution. So we did that too. And that was really helpful because that teased out a lot of the implicit things that people do and did and saw like, here's our job description. Here's what people are doing. Yeah, great. We should have thought about this sooner. And then the third piece that was really helpful was we already had our metric sheet mm -hmm. and it was pretty robust, but we really got into the metrics. And if we would have thought of, if we were that disciplined the entire time looking at all of the different metrics we should use to measure an agency, we would have been a lot better. I think it was, who was it? Was it Andy Grove or it might've been like measure what matters, John Doerr. It's like the first thing about being able to do something well is measuring it. And if you right. don't know what to measure, just measure something because yeah. you're probably going to get closer to the mark or tease something out over time. And yeah, we had metrics, but we never stopped to think well, is this the right metric for us? Like, right. yes or you no. The, the right thing. And is it a leading or trailing indicator of where the business is going? Exactly. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting. Uh, and I hear this again and again, I experienced it myself, which is if I had only treated my company like I was trying to sell it from the beginning and done that level of having a data room and having the right kinds of dashboards and really drilling down into the KPIs, I probably could have two or three X that business compared to what I did because you don't think about it, but that the day-to-day -day takes you away and you're like so busy with client stuff, but you're not watching the big picture. And I think you going through that process, was, was, as you're saying, eye-opening. And that that's something that anybody could do, even if you're not going to get acquired, it's only going to help you and make the work easier later. And it's going to make your business better now. Yep, absolutely. There's a certain degree of, I don't like using this word, it's the wrong word, but like the first word that popped to my mind is my co-founder and I were militant when we were like going through the process of selling and we were getting closer and closer to a sale. We were mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, these metrics need to be updated 
weekly. I cannot walk into a meeting where this stuff is not for the last week. We need last week's metrics working. Right. And if they're not working, and it was a higher standard is <clears> really <throat> what it was. And we cared more because we were talking to people who really were staking money to buy our thing. And we wanted mm -hmm. to make sure we were delivering to, to them. But yeah, it was, wow. If we just like played the game that every day or even twice a week, we'd be much further along. <laughs> the other thing I really like about that is you talked about how you did all of the after action reviews on anyone who churned. And giving that to the acquirer, because whether or not you do that, and everyone should do that regardless internally, but it, it brings to mind the real reason why someone is buying an agency, which is for cash flow. I mean, for certainty, they're not buying it just for the fun of it. So the more certainty that you give someone in the acquisition process will actually affect your multiple. Because it, even if it's bad news, if you've contained the bad news and quantified the bad news, now you can discuss it in some way that's not this big, scary cloud on the asset. So just the process of doing that and being so disciplined around the bad things that are happening, churn in the agency is a really good way to think about it. Agreed 100%. And also this would probably be interesting. And this would probably be something to, to think about too, is with a lot of this M&A stuff, there's black and white, and then there's the messy middle. And a lot of that mm -hmm. messy middle, when you're transacting on a business, can be figured out. There are things like a, a Q of E, a quality of earnings that people mm -hmm. do when they transact on businesses, where if you don't give them all of the right information, of course you could hide stuff or it slipped through the cracks. But more often than not, you'd be so incredibly surprised how thorough a lot of these transactions are. And mm -hmm. it's that those are the things that deteriorate any relationship or any trust between one person and another. So yeah, that was one of the first things we were like, Hey, we're not the best agency. We'll show you all of the reasons why we're not the best agency, <laughs> but here are also some things we think we do well. If you're this type of agency, I think you'd be an awesome one to acquire our business. So yeah, right. that's something I really stress to people. I remember the second conversation I had uh, with my acquirer and it was like, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why this business stinks. And if you yeah. still want to keep on discussing, then we'll have another discussion. But I'm going to tell you all the, the stuff that keeps me up all night, all the skeletons in the yep. closet, and then we're going to break and then call me if you're still interested. And that was the best way because I could have a completely clear conscience that I have disclosed everything. And yeah. that way there's no gotchas in diligence, which I've done acquisitions on the buy side. And yeah. it, you get to the 11th hour, you're about to close and then you find something there and you're like, whoa, hey, wait a minute. And that's much worse than just disclosing yes. it up front. Oh my goodness, yes. I cannot say I agree enough with that statement because <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that ruins transactions. And yeah. it's just, I guess I understand why maybe somebody does it, but I, I think it's just way better to be forthcoming about all of the, the pros and cons of the business yeah. because you know what? People can feel body language. People can feel your intonation. They can see all and feel and hear all of these things. So mm -hmm. why try to portray something that's not true? Yeah. And frankly, most agency sales are not such sophisticated businesses that it won't be found out. I mean, yeah. you can't really, yeah. there's no Enron burial of anything in like some obscure books. It's all pretty transparent. They're going to find out. 
Yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty simple to see how long a client's there. Just ask for books access and see how many invoices went out. It's like, oh, well, you know what? Actually, our retention is four months, but not it's not a year. So yeah, exactly. yeah, of course, it's going to be found out. That's awesome. So just tell me a little bit to kind of close out how now you've transitioned to really being on the course side of, yep. of things and having owned and operated assets and assets with partners. Tell me how that's gone and what you're doing now and, and things like that. Yeah, sure. So I still have a minority stake through my past business, Gexa, in that startup studio that's doing really well. We have a, a portfolio of courses that have grown from zero to at the end of 2022, they did 66 million in top line on an accrual basis with pretty, pretty solid margin. And they're trending toward 83 million this year. So that's still growing and that's great. There's really no involvement for myself apart from strategy. And it's a couple hours a week, which is amazing. It's like best case scenario. Um, and, and then I joined a private equity business after selling the agency. And so I am what's called an operating partner at a private equity business. So for anybody which I'm really saying, hey, th I, this is what I learned 10 months ago. Uh, a private equity business, they buy businesses. And so once they buy a business, you need somebody to run the business. And oftentimes the CEO may not want to stay on board. And so you need to find a new CEO. And that's what an operating partner fulfills is that CEO role in a company that you buy for duration of time that could be Three months, it could be a year and a half, it could be something, but six to 12 months is usually what I've heard the average being. And so I'm an operating partner operating uh, within a private equity business. So I'm currently, we call them journeys. And my journey right now is actually starting up another online education startup studio. So there you go. It comes a circle. Yeah. <laughs> you're, I, you're, you're playing to your strength though. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. But that's like the evolution. And I'm really happy for all of the opportunities that the agency afforded me because it is one of those things where you learn so much in such a short period of time. The feedback mm -hmm. is instantaneous. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything like it. That's, that's right. and, and so what kind of opportunities are you looking for now? If there's someone listening who might know somebody who might benefit either from I don't know, selling a course business to your fund or something like that. What are the types of people that you're interested in, in meeting? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking for online course creators looking to sell their businesses. Those businesses could be anywhere between uh, 500K and $5 million in annual revenue. That is pretty much where we're playing right now. And then for mm -hmm. the bigger and larger private equity business uh, that I'm a, a part of, uh, we buy $3 million to $10 million ARR SaaS businesses. And those businesses typically are distressed. So if you raise venture capital, you don't hit your targets and you're thinking about maybe giving your company a new life, very similar to how I did with my agency. That's mm -hmm. something also I'm very interested in connecting with those types of people. Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Tommy, a bunch of lessons learned here, I think on perspectives of how to grow, what to watch, making sure you're actually watching your KPIs and very importantly, using the agency as a vehicle to create assets or to create your next step and cut your teeth on a whole bunch of things. So I really appreciate the insight. Of course. Thank you for having me again and appreciated and had fun with the conversation. All right. Great. Talk to you soon. Cool. Awesome. Bye.